You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. From CFUV 101.9 FM, I'm your host, Maureen Chow. Matt, tell me who you are and what you do here at UVic. Um, okay, so my name is Matt Miller, and I am a UVic grad student in the School of Earth and Ocean Science, I'm doing my master's. How is thesis world right now? Uh, it's a little crazy, um, <laughs> as most people would tell you, but uh, preparing for uh, my trip in September to the Arctic, so getting a lot of stuff ready for that at school right now. Why don't you tell us what exactly it is you do? I'm studying ocean acidification, um, so it's along the lines of ocean oceanography. So this research cruise that I'm going on, which will be in the um, the Canada Basin, Beaufort Sea, which is just above Alaska, will be all of September, and it'll be doing um, oceanographic sampling of like water and plankton and um, zooplankton, basically. Nice. And in the meantime, how have you been preparing for this? Uh, getting things ready to take, sampling stuff, lab supplies, planning my travels and booking flights and things like that. Um, all on top of my other, um, stuff that I have to do for my thesis as well. So kind of all compounds. How long has this trip been in the books? We've been planning this one for the past few months or so, but the trip has been planned, uh, long before I knew I was going by, um, it's a... On a Coast Guard ship, Canadian Coast Guard, uh, with uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And it's also a a collaboration cruise with Woods Hole Institute out of the States and Jamstech, which is the uh, Japanese um, scientist uh, institute. What are Coast Guards? So, well, the Coast Guard, they run all of the, like, the Canadian fleet for um, search and rescue, mapping of things at the ocean floor, but also they assist with uh, marine science. So the Fisheries and Oceans... Canada, they do biological, marine biology research, and they go out on those uh, Coast Guard ships. So the Coast Guard, they run the ship, so all the heavy-duty stuff, the mechanics and all that kind of stuff, and then the scientists go, go on board and, um, and they assist them with their sampling. How will this go into your thesis? Uh, so I'll be collecting uh, some samples of pteropods, which are kind of my study organism. They're like very tiny marine snails. Uh, the common name is sea butterfly, which is kind of cool, but they're the very tiny planktonic snails that swim with two sort of wings, and that's why they're called sea butterflies. But And so we'll be collecting those out of the, the plankton nets, and uh, the reason we're taking those is they have these very thin shells that are thought to be quite susceptible to ocean acidification. So as the ocean becomes more acidic, their little shells um, can start to dissolve. And so um, I'm looking at the impacts of that on those um, organisms around Vancouver Island. And also now um, I'll have some samples from the Arctic to compare to. Are we able to see see butterflies with the naked eye? Some species can get larger, but the ones, the most common species and the ones that I'm studying are like a millimeter, two millimeters in diameter. So they're very, very tiny. If you, you can see them as little specks in the water, but you wouldn't really be able to make them out without a microscope. And how long do you spend in the lab with them once you've collected? I've spent quite a few hours with them. I'm assuming I'll be spending many, many more in the future once I've got all my samples and I'll be actually making measurements in the lab. What's kind of like a rough estimate in terms of the amount of samples that you collect? 
Um, well, one one cruise that lasts maybe a week uh, or two weeks, I can get. I mean, it's variable, but like hundreds of of individuals um, samples, and you know, each individual could take, uh, depending on what methods you're doing, like a half an hour to an hour maybe to process in the lab. So it can add up quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> One would imagine. <laughs> and if you're spending so much time on it, there must be kind of a bigger mission with the thesis. So I know you've mentioned microplastics. Can we go a little bit deeper? So the my experience with microplastics is from my, my undergrad um, and sort of past research experience. And it's not unfortunately tied in at all to my thesis, I, I would really love to look for microplastics in pteropods because they have these mucus webs that they feed with and they just kind of catch food that falls out of the water. So I assume that with microplastics just sort of floating around in the ocean and, and settling in that they may be ingesting them. So I have that suspicion. I don't really have the resources or time in my thesis to study that. Um, so the focus is really the impacts on their shells of the acidification. But yeah, I could talk more about microplastics if you, if you want to hear more about Yeah, that. we do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what would you like to know? Well, how do you recognize them, first of all? How do you like to identify them? Yeah, or okay. how do you know that this area has these properties, for example? Sure, yeah. It's a really good question. You, we, so we studied them in a variety of ways. You can sample sediments from the, the beach or the ocean floor. You can sample the seawater directly, um, or you can sample life, so the, you know animals that live in the ocean. And you basically, from those samples, need to somehow extract the microplastics, which is not easy. Basically, you use you know, lab methods to use various solutions or different methods to separate those plastics out of either the tissues of the animal or the, the sand or the water. But once you get them, basically the goal is to get them onto a filter. Um, so you extract all those microplastics and then you look at it with a microscope and you can identify and count the, uh, the microplastics. Now, actually identifying them it can be tricky because there are many um, things in the ocean that look like microplastics. So we mostly see fibers, microplastic fibers are kind of the dominant form of microplastics in the environment, which not many people know that. Um, more people think of like microbeads or fragments, right? right? And those are there, but fibers make up the more dominant type. And you can easily confuse those with uh, like a natural cellulosic fiber from cotton or seaweed or some kind of a plant material as well. With the fibers that we don't want, what's causing them? So those are uh, primarily coming from synthetic clothing and textiles. And so that's like polyester, fleece, nylon. Um, fleece is the worst emitter, basically one piece of fleece clothing um, will release hundreds of thousands of microfibers per wash cycle. And from that effluent from your washing machine, that water will go to a city treatment plant in most cases. And they can be up to 90% effective at removing microplastics, but the 10% that gets out is still a significant um, amount of microplastics. And other than textiles, what, there's so much talk nowadays with eliminating straws and plastic bottles. How does that play into it? So that's still an important step because those those are what we call macroplastics. So they're the larger than five millimeters. Micro is, you know, microplastics are five millimeters or less. But those macroplastics will break up into microplastics eventually. So if they're out in the ocean or in the environment with um, exposure to UV rays from the sun, wave action, mixing them around, um, they get brittle. 
and they fragment up into more microplastics. So to stop that source getting out there and to remove what's already there is, is an important step of it for sure. Can I ask you what are some of the best fabrics that you personally buy or that you would say are the safest? I, would, I always tell people to try to focus on natural fibers. So cotton, um, bamboo, hemp, or wool, those are great alternatives. It's not feasible really for every aspect of your clothing. When you think about like uh, outdoor clothing, rain, you know, a rain jacket is synthetic and there's really no good alternative for that right now. But the good thing about those types of articles is you generally don't wash them that often. I don't know the last time you put your (laughs) rain jacket through the washing machine, right? And they also don't tend to fragment as much as something like fleece or or a t-shirt would. So the clothes that you wear close to your body, like undergarments or shirts and things that you're washing more often because they're absorbing the oils from your body, uh, that's where you want to focus on the natural fibers. And where did your passion for eliminating microplastics begin? Uh, It started in my undergrad in about, I think it was third year when I got a job with a lab doing research and they started doing some microplastics research. That was at um, Vancouver Island University uh, in Nanaimo. And just learning a bit more about it um, throughout, through working as a research assistant in that lab, I just became really passionate about it. And, and yeah, then I continued on to do a project as my undergrad honors thesis on microplastics in shellfish and have continued my, my passion on the topic since then. How does your past research relate to what you're doing now? Well, it definitely got me to where I am now. Like, without doing that research, I don't think I would be a grad student because it really exposed me to academic research. So learning more about the whole process and the scientific method and what grad school is all about and, you know, what potential jobs are available afterwards. Yeah, so without that research experience, I don't think I would have become a grad student. Out of curiosity, what potential jobs are in the future. So many scientists will tell you that there's not a huge number of jobs in the marine sciences field. Really? But yeah, but it's it's still, there's hope. And, and my goal is to be a, a research scientist, whether it be for the government or a university or a private institution. Um, so there is, we're situated as far as location. It's pretty good here in Victoria because you've got the uh, Institute of Ocean Sciences, which is run by DFO, the federal government, um, out in Sydney. You've got UVic here, which does a lot of marine science, and you're on the coast, right? So of course. you're near the, wa- the water. So it's a little bit, there's probably more opportunities here than would be, say, in like Calgary or something right, like that. Right, the middle of the prairies, yeah. <laughs> and why is it that, do you think, that people will say there's less jobs in marine sciences than other sciences? Is it that people don't care or... No, I wouldn't say it's because people don't care. I think people care probably more about like marine right. and ocean related things than some abstract science. It's but easier for us to picture. Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason that there's, you know, not many jobs is just part of government kind of bureaucracy and funding. And under the last federal government regime, there was a lot of cuts to science, especially um, marine sciences. With the new government, there's been a restoration of some of that funding and there is some hiring going on. So I'm hopeful but there is a new federal election coming up in this fall. And so that could really, whoever, however that swings, could impact the future of, um, you know, of my career. Fair enough. With jobs right now, are you working on campus? Yeah. What do you do? Uh, well, I, as a grad student, I wouldn't, I'm not really working like a job. It's just part of my thesis 
my whole research is all uh, is kind of what I do day to day. So I come to school and I either am in the lab or in the office doing, you know, emailing or logistics and planning trips and things like that for field work, planning what I'm going to do in the future for lab work. And as a grad student in, in Canada, I mean, a lot and in North America, I think a lot of people don't understand that you do get funding as a grad student. So you get you get a living sort of a stipend. It's not by any means a lot of money, but it's enough to pay your living while you're doing it. And you don't really have enough time to get a you know a job you could but it's it would be difficult somewhat unrealistic yeah so so that funding is really designed to support you um to live while you do your master's so it's not like you're just racking up a bunch more tuition and debt you're really kind of breaking even in most cases for grad students i believe is that part of what brought you to uvic from nanaimo um yeah i mean that's part of it uh the location i love victoria it's still on the island so i like you know i grew up on the island so it's nice to stay around family and and it's so beautiful here but also all the good opportunities with with marine sciences here like i mentioned previously and then yeah the, the funding is is good but grad students can always use more funding <laughs> <laughs> agreed i'm starting mine in a couple of weeks <laughs> and for jobs in general i know you're an ocean bridge leader what's that yeah, cool. So uh, Ocean Bridge is a, a new program um, ran through uh, OceanWise, which is at the Vancouver Aquarium. It's a, a program that is funded by the Canada Service Corps, so federal government funding. And it's designed to, uh, to, to bring 40 youth from across Canada, so from coast to coast to coast, all together and to empower them to be uh, ocean leaders really to sort of be an ambassador for the ocean so it's the 40 students or, or young people who are um, 18 to 30 who were selected were already sort of doing work in that like you know they were passionate about the oceans and they were doing volunteering or whatever um, and then so this program is really to sort of help those people including myself make a bigger impact so take that impact a bit farther and is that based here I mean no, you mentioned the aquarium, but yeah, how does so that work? Yeah, so the program is ran out of the aquarium. The coordinators are there, um, but the youth are from all over Canada. So we have um, people from Western Canada all the way through Central and out to the East Coast and in the Arctic as well. There's um, some people from Nunavut. Um, so it's a very diverse group of individuals, and we get together as national calls, kind of conference calls. But we also have two excursions that we got together. One is in, was in Haida Gwaii in May. And so they uh, flew us all out to, to Haida Gwaii and we lived there together for uh, 10 days doing local service projects and community service, um, you know, educating ourselves, getting to know each other. And we did some beach cleanups as well there. Um, our next trip is to uh, Vancouver in October and that's more of like an urban service project. So we're the Haida Gwaii one was kind of like a remote community focus, whereas now uh, for Vancouver, we're really targeting the, the urban environment and city city people. And what happens on these excursions? Like, for example, for the cleanup, describe like a day in the life of such. <laughs> okay, well, one of the cleanups was really interesting because we, uh, we took a boat to get there. Um, we were staying um, in a campsite near uh, Masset, and we took a boat, a couple hours of a boat ride out to... Um, I believe it was called Kiusta Bay, and walked through the forest out to Lepus Bay, which is this beautiful beach on the northwestern um, tip of Haida Gwaii. And it's a very exposed uh, beach, so you get a lot of those big kind of surf waves coming in, but it's one of those like gradual sloping sandy beaches, kind of like out in Tofino. So just absolutely beautiful until you really start to look down and notice how much plastic was there. And, you know, Haida Gwaii is 
there's not many people there, like as far as large population in large cities. So you, you wouldn't expect to see lots of like garbage and pollution, but it's surprising how much was there. And that's because Haida Gwaii, where it's situated, it's very, um, uh, it's, it's the way that the ocean circulates around that area. It's like a natural catchment for floating debris. And so all those plastics that are out there floating through those, those gyres and those currents can make their way there and get caught on the beaches. So for things that we were finding, I would say about half of, maybe about 50% of the items were like rope, pieces of rope or floats from like fishing. Um, and then about a quarter was clearly of, uh, you know, Asian country origin. So they had like Asian characters on the, on bottles and things like that. But the other quarter was North American. You could clearly tell. So people, a lot of people like to blame the sort of the South Asian countries for being uh, emitting the most plastic into the ocean, but really it's, you know, we're part of the problem as well. So it's not, you can't just focus on those countries. And the other thing to think about is that we, as the Western world gave those countries the miracle of plastic, right? But we didn't give them the technology, the knowledge or the infrastructure to deal with that waste. So really it's our problem just as much as it is theirs. In your opinion, how much do you think we're culturally aware of these issues, let's say the average West Coast Island person. Okay, so for that demographic, I would say we're doing pretty good. I mean, there's still people here that, you know, don't really understand don't a lot care. of those problems yeah. or don't care, but I'd say as far as, a, you know, a percentage, we're pretty we're pretty good. People on the island typically appreciate the environment. They, they live near the ocean, so they really see those things. It's real to them, right? It's a bit different for people who are landlocked um, and away from the ocean, even though everybody's connected to the ocean, right? Any waterway leads into the ocean, right? And every second breath that we take comes from the ocean, right? It produces 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. So everybody really is connected to the ocean. And you mentioned doing an urban initiative in Vancouver soon. How is that going to compare to what you did in Haida Gwaii? It'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be different for sure. You know, Vancouver is, it's kind of tucked into the Salish Sea there uh, on the other side of Vancouver Island, so it's not like exposed like those uh, Haida Gwaii beaches. So they don't get the typical wash up of the debris. The debris that you'd find on those beaches are probably um, more of people leaving the trash there or coming through rivers from more inland as well. And then just the, you know, the probably the amount of people and, and the type of people, right? The people on Haida Gwaii, the Haida peoples, they're very grounded to the ocean, right? Their culture is based on the ocean. They believe they came from the ocean. They grew up, you know, their whole economy is about uh, fishing and, and living near the sea. So it's quite different when you take a bunch of city folk from Vancouver. <laughs> um, <be> me. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our goal with that is, is, um, is really to educate them and, and um, sh you know, show them how connected they are to the ocean and how everything in their daily life really, you know, every action that they take can, can directly affect the way um, the ocean in some way. Are there any particular plans set in place yet or still in the works? We're still in the planning phases of different projects, but uh, one of them that I'm leading, so keep keep an eye out for this project in October, which will be really fun if it works out as a, a plogging race. So I'm not sure if you heard of plogging before, but it's picking up litter while jogging, essentially. <laughs> and uh, it started in uh, Scandinavia. Some runners just started picking up garbage while they're out on their jogs, and they kind of made it a you know, a social media, almost a trend now, right? And so people are um, out on the runs and they pick up litter. And, you know, it's actually a better workout because you're 
not only running, but you're, mo- you're moving you're up and down, right? It's like you're getting your squats <laughs> yeah. in while you run. So, um, so it's kind of become a trend online. And uh, so we're trying to organize um, an actual race uh, through hopefully around the Stanley Park seawall where people, runners can come out and compete. But um, So race, but also pick up trash at the same time and, and get points for uh, the amount of garbage they pick up or the number of items. And, you know, that could lead to like time deductions or something like that. So can be the next sun run. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and with all these projects, how would you say that your education at UVic affects what you do? It's, I think it's helped me in terms of project planning and sort of like that type of thing. Being, getting very professional with e- emailing and things like that. So being a grad student, definitely you learn quickly um, how to do that type of stuff. And I think that's helped with, with this type of, um, with project. How similar is your lifestyle as a grad student in comparison with what you may want to do as a career one day? I think it's pretty similar. That's the beauty of grad school in the sciences is that you're pretty much doing what, you know, if, you're, if your plan is to become a, a research scientist, you're pretty much already doing what you'll be doing. You're, it's very independent. You know, um, you have a supervisor, but generally they, it's, it's, it's up to you really on how to progress through that and the amount of work you put in. You know, you've got this research project. You have to plan out what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it. You know, usually you're in charge of some type of, you know, organizing funding and money for it. And then you're carrying that out, all that research out and analyzing the data, publishing the results in a paper or thesis. So really that's kind of, that's the, the goal of a, a scientist. That's what they do. So that's kind of, it prepares you pretty well for the future, I think. Is that why you chose to pursue grad studies or in part why? It's, it's one of the reasons. Yeah, because I knew it was, it would be, I'd be doing what I already want to do, but also I'm furthering my education at the same time. So it was kind of a no-brainer. Fair enough. What are some of the other reasons? I mean, they're fairly obvious, but was there anything that drew you to doing it right after your undergrad, I believe? Yeah, I did start right after. That was, I think for my, in my case, more of, because I was a bit of more of a mature student, if you'd say. I started my undergrad when I was 23, so I took a bit of time off after high school. Um, so by the time I finished my undergrad, you know, I was 20, 27, I guess, and I kind of just wanted to continue on and not have any more gaps and and so just yeah just get it done <laughs> <laughs> and would you stay in academia even if what you're doing is similar in terms of your day-to-day task or your similar types of planning would you do that within a school or would you do that within the government I'm open to both options I think because you know it depends on the organization you know some some give you more f- freedom as a researcher than others but um you know the the beauty of it is you're you're never doing the same thing every day so whether you're in the government research or, ac- or academia or even the private um sector you know with science you're you're generally not doing a repetitive thing every day for your whole career and that kind of thinking of sitting at a desk every day for my whole life really scared me so that's kind of <laughs> one of the reasons why I became a scientist um, is because part of your t- your time you're in the lab doing lab work, which is always fun. Part of the time you're out in the field, which is is my favorite part. It's the best part about it. And then the other part of the time you're you know you're, you are at a desk writing the paper or analyzing data. But it's you know the ultimate goal is to help the world, right? To create knowledge and and do something good. So the the positive feeling that you get after is is good. And I think that's you know why I became why I got into science is because I wanted to look back on my career and actually 
you know, feel good about it and know that I See did the accomplishments. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have two questions on that note. The first of which is how much does being out there doing field research influence how much you care? Yeah, being out there, you see things firsthand. So for in the plastics instance, right, you see the plastic on the beaches. Um, and so that makes it real for you for sure. Um, but also being out in sort of like very natural environments out at sea on a research ship or you know out on the intertidal in some archipelago of islands in the central coast you you just see how beautiful it is right the natural the pristine environment and it just makes you care more like to protect that right and for those of us who don't get to do that why should we care it's a good question i think that's part of our job as scientists is not only to do the research get the data and publish these very you know, jargon-heavy technical papers, but to also part of that, your your sort of moral responsibility as a scientist is to communicate that, your findings with the public, and do so in a way that they can understand. So, and that's been a big influence on, um, you know, my path, and part of the work that I do with OceanBridge is, is public education and, and outreach, and that is one of the most important things that a scientist can do, and that's improving. Like, there's a definitely more of a push these days to do things like, you know, when you publish a paper, also do more of a, you know, non-jargon sort of uh, version of a report or publish a, you know, a paragraph on social media about your findings or do talks to, you know, presentations out in the public. So at the mention of media, how do you think it compares between what the average consumer sees on, like, let's say the news or nowadays it can be even more instant, like on Twitter Instagram mm -hmm. even, that type of thing. How I, do you think it's perceived um, versus how you see it? Well, it makes it a lot more accessible to see that. It, it Generally, people aren't going out and on their in their spare time and looking up, you know, journal articles from Nature or the Royal Proceedings of Science or something like that, right, and, and right. downloading the, the direct papers because, you know, first of all, those papers are not written in a way that's, you know, easy to read or understand. They're not page turners, right? <laughs> um, but they're they're behind paywalls of like you know a lot of those journals charge money to access. So working at an institution like UVic, you have as a student, you have access to that. But the general public doesn't. And so yeah, social media has made things like getting facts about things pretty easy. But kind of a evil side of that is that a lot of uh, sort of journalists or 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 you know articles that you see on Facebook, they. Um, they typically, you know, they capture the main kind of findings of a study, but they can often interpret it the wrong way. And there's a lot of parts in a, a scientific paper where, where a scientist will say, like, you know, we found this, but, you know, there's always a but, like you could be, but we also, you know, might be wrong. And the, the journal, journalist writes on their, you know, Twitter feed, they found this. So they don't include those sort of like those reservations that scientists have as part of the scientific method, right? You know that you're not 100% confident. That's why we have uncertainties, like a 95% confidence interval or something like that. So I think it can definitely spread misinformation. Um, that, And we see that on, on social media today. Is that it is a big problem, right? Fake news. For everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in those discrepancies, like the things that the media may not consider, but that make your job more difficult, but also worthwhile, I would assume... How does that translate into when you're writing a thesis, per se? 
how do you take those things into consideration while proving your point? So if I'm writing uh, like a scientific paper or a thesis or something for my coursework or something like that, I typically don't alter it in any way in that case, like sort of in layman's terms or the public, you, you kind of, you know, keep it in that scientific um, bubble. But I do uh, think that it's so important to also communicate it in an easy to understand way for the public. So I'm always open to doing like presentations or having conversations and I'm always sharing things on Facebook that is, you know, good science, sound science. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a, a advocate of the truth really, right? Um, and so, uh, <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've heard of the UVic Speakers Bureau. No, I haven't. It's a, a group on campus that they searched out um, researchers and grad students from UVic who are willing to give uh, public presentations about their research. And so they've compiled the list of these people and their topics. And uh, you can access it as a a public member or at a school as a teacher or whoever and contact the speaker bureau and say, look, um, I, I want to have this person come in to talk about their, their presentation on, you know, fossils or whatever. And then that researcher can say, yeah, it works with my schedule or no, or, but, um, yeah, it's an easy way to get a speaker who's, you know, a scientist um, or a grad student out to your classroom or to your community event or something like that. On the topic of UVic, what is your favorite part about this program here? About the program that I'm doing or the program that you're doing yeah okay well (laughs) see I'm in the school of earth and ocean science I originally applied in the biology program um, but my supervisor he's uh, adjunct in both so I ended up becoming a CIOS or earth and ocean science student but what's cool about that is I get to see and meet um, and hear about research from people who are like volcanologists they study volcanoes uh, geologists um, planetary scientists just really cool stuff that I'd, I had never been experienced to. My background is more in like marine biology, right? So there's a bit of a lack of, of camaraderie around biologists around me, but there's a, all this other cool stuff that I get to see, and that's really been interesting for sure. Thank you so much for coming in today. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hopefully everyone cares a little more. <laughs> I hope so too. For interviewee contact information or to listen to this episode again, go to podcasts at cfuv.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Jargon.